0: I invite you again to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to uh, the Gospel of Matthew. Our text this morning can be found on page 808 if you're using the pew Bible and the rack in front of you. We are in Matthew's Gospel, uh, chapter 3, verses uh, 1 to 12. Uh, if you have been away for a week or two, I know we had lots of folks uh, out or traveling or sick over the last couple of weeks and uh, over the holiday. You might not have realized that we have... Uh, finished our sermon series in the book of Genesis, and we have begun uh, a new series, and we're already at uh, the fourth sermon in a sermon series uh, in Matthew's Gospel. We're uh, moving right along. Uh, We have uh, seen in the last couple of weeks the bridge between Genesis and Jesus through Matthew, through the genealogy that he gives, through the many prophecies that he quotes as fulfilled in the arrival of Christ. We have met this child, he has a name, he hasn't done anything yet. We don't know really anything about the character or the person of Jesus, except that there are a whole lot of expectations placed upon him uh, so far in Matthew's gospel. But we're not really going to meet him in this text either, but we are going to get some more expectations. And so we are prepared next week uh, when he sort of finally appears in full uh, to tell us in his own words who he is. Our text this morning is about John the Baptist, a transitionary figure from the Old Testament to the New, from the age of the prophets to the age of the arrival of the Messiah. Uh, He will be a big deal for about a week, and then he will fade away in our study of this gospel. So as you follow along with me in your copy of God's Word, Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with an unquenchable fire. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever. Would you join me again in prayer? Lord, these are Serious and sobering words this morning. I pray that by your Spirit they would arrest our hearts. You would shake us out of lethargy or presumption or boredom or skepticism. We would see the power and the might and the glory of this coming King. And, O God, if our hearts are not prepared, we pray that your Spirit would move in a mighty way these few minutes to bend the knees of our hearts, to break our stiff necks, that we would this day and this hour bow in joyful submission to our risen and conquering King, lest, O Lord, we are forced on that great day of judgment to bow the knee when he comes in his power and glory and judgment and wrath. Speak to us in these few minutes, O Lord, we pray, for your servants are listening. Amen. I spent the last few days after Christmas down in Augusta, Georgia, visiting with my wife's family and friends. We go to Augusta many times a year. If you know anything about Augusta, you probably know it for one reason. It hosts a famous golf tournament, the Masters Golf Tournament. Every spring uh, is hosted in this middle-sized southern town, and it sort of takes over the town. And everybody watches these beautiful flowers and golf courses and trees on TV, but it takes a lot of work to host all these people. All these celebrities and fans descend upon Augusta every spring, and they have to stay somewhere for this week-long golf tournament. And so there's this tradition in town that many members open their homes to all the guests who have come in to watch the golf tournament. They rent out their house for the week, and uh, they go somewhere else, and they, they make a pretty penny that week, right? You can imagine renting out your house in Asheville during leaf season. It's like that times 10 in Augusta during the master's. Well, the best houses, they don't run out to the guests. They run out to the golfers themselves. So the best golfers in the world come to Augusta and they stay in your house. Imagine that. You've got a week to get ready to host a celebrity, a millionaire uh, in your home. They have an advanced list of what needs to be in the house, how it needs to be prepared, how it needs to be ready for the celebrity to come. You can imagine sort of the, the anticipation and the anxiety of, of having someone so grand and important stay in your home, what it's like to prepare your house for that moment. Well, Matthew comes to us and says, there's not a golf tournament coming to town, but there's a king coming to town. (laughs) And you don't need to prepare your house for the king. You need to prepare something a whole lot more important for the king. You need to prepare your heart. It's one thing to prepare your house for a golfer, even a really good golfer. It's a whole other thing to prepare your heart for the king. Matthew is telling every one of us what it looks like. He's telling every one of us whether you believe in Jesus or not. Whether you're here as a worshiper, whether you are here as a skeptic, whether you were here this morning as an unbeliever. John has the same message for every single one of us. That message is that the coming king demands the surrender of our hearts. He demands the surrender of our hearts. He demands everything of us. You know, if you run out your house, you probably have a couple locked closets to kind of tuck some things away that your guest can't go into. There's there's none of that here. There's no holding anything back from this coming king. He demands everything. He demands the surrender of our heart. That's what I want you to see uh, this morning in our 12 verses. There's three steps to the coming of this king. The first step is the announcement, verses 1 to 6. The announcement of the king. Now, look how the chapter begins. In those days, that doesn't give us a year or a time frame, but he puts us in, in the place of the days of Jesus. Now, we just left off. The child. Presumably the young child Jesus has come back from a sojourn in Egypt. Uh, There is still a king in power that is a threat to him. So his father, warned in a dream, goes north in the district of Galilee to Nazareth, where this young child grows up. Matthew tells us nothing of this childhood. In those days, appears to be years later, maybe decades later, uh, maybe 30 years or so later before We pick up the story as Jesus, the adult Jesus, is about to come on the scene. But it's not just a a 30-year wait. It's actually hundreds and hundreds of years of waiting. You see, we're at the beginning of the New Testament, right? In the first couple chapters of Matthew. If we flip back to the end of the Old Testament, we see there's this period of prophets speaking to God's people. But the Old Testament ends and there's this period, hundreds of years of silence, of prophetic silence where there, isn't, there are no prophets on the scene. There are no prophets sent by God to speak to his people. It's almost a, a judgment of silence. And into that scene in those days comes someone who is given the name John the Baptist. Now, I listened to a sermon this week by someone who's not a Baptist and they said this isn't a fair name. Because we all should be able to claim John the Baptist, not just the Baptist, right? The Lutherans and the Anglicans and the Presbyterians, he's our guy too, right? He's really John the Baptizer, right? He's John, he's doing he's the one doing the baptizing. He is a unique guy. He is a unique messenger, and he has a unique message. The messenger first, he's a preacher. So where does he go to preach his sermons? To the middle of the desert. That is a weird place to go start your preaching ministry. He goes out into the wilderness. Why does he go into the wilderness? Verse 3 tells us he is fulfilling the words of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah told us those many hundred hundred years ago that would come one in the wilderness. Crying out a message, a voice. In the wilderness, John is, in a sense, fulfilling uh, this this expectation, this expectation of a Messiah or a king or one to come to fulfill all of the Old Testament. And so he must go out into the wilderness in the desert to start. Now, much has been made about his clothes. We're not usually told what people wear in the Bible. So we're told what he's wearing. We're also told what he's eating is the strange diet of locusts and honey. Lots has been written about that. Lots has been said about that. I think what's most important is there are parallels here between what he is wearing and eating with the prophet Elijah. He is, in a sense, the the repetition, sort of the fulfillment of Elijah to come, a powerful prophet preparing the way for the king. And so there's a reason that everyone in Jerusalem and Judea goes out to this guy because they hear the news. There's this guy with these weird clothes and these weird diet and he's preaching in the wilderness. You know what that means? It means the king's about to come. There's this excitement. It doesn't mean anything to us, but it means something to them. This excitement at his arrival, right? It's like when, when you go out to eat and you've ordered your food with the waiter and you're waiting for five minutes, ten minutes, and, 15 minutes and the food just still hasn't come. And you start to wonder, where's our food? You Start looking around. Well, where's our, our waiter, right? There's that table was sat before us. They have their food and they have their food. Where's our food? And you begin to look, where does the food come from? You look at the door to the kitchen and the door opens and it's not your waiter. And another door opens again and it's somebody else. And finally, your waiter comes out, right? And it, you're, you're excited. Here comes the food. Here comes the meal. Here comes what we've been waiting for. It's as if there's 400 years of looking. Where is that voice going to come in the wilderness? Boom, here it is. The long-awaited messenger is here. But despite all of their weight, I don't think they're totally prepared for the message, the unique message that comes from the unique messenger. Look what he says in verse 2. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The first word, the first message of this announcement is to repent. That means they're not doing something right. (laughs) That means everyone who hears it needs to do something different, needs to, to change, to change their mindset, to change their attitude, to change their action. This is the work of the Old Testament prophets, calling God's people to repent. And what they mean by that is to return. It means come back means you've left your God. You have stopped believing in him. You have stopped obeying him. And God sends his prophets over and over and over again. And they say, come back, return, repent. And who hears this message? Israel. They go out, wow, man, here he comes. Here comes the king. And then what smacks them in the face is a voice telling them, Repent. They think they're the ones excited and waiting for him, but they learn quickly that they're not prepared for this king. Repent. Change. Why? Why must they repent? He gives the reason. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Because the kingdom is here. Now it's called the kingdom of heaven. Matthew calls it the kingdom of heaven. That phrase is unique in Matthew's gospel. Mark, Luke, and John almost always call it the kingdom of God. But in Matthew, we will find over and over again the phrase or the name, the kingdom of heaven. He is the king that is ushering in the reign and the era of heaven, as it were. The focus of the kingdom of heaven in most of scripture is not so much on the geographical boundaries. How far does the kingdom stretch? How far does it go to the north? How far does it go to the east? It's not a discussion on the, the location of the kingdom. It's more a focus on the reign of the king. We see the kingdom where we see men and women and children surrendering to the king. It's not about sort of objective laws It's not about declaring that this country or these people or this kingdom is following after God. No, it's about individual hearts and minds surrendering and bowing the knee to the king. And John comes with a message of confrontation and a message of urgency. Because the last part is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here. It's now. So you must repent now. It's not about waiting for it to come. It's not, well, it's January 2nd. You have the rest of the year before you need to make any changes. No, it's now. The kingdom of heaven is here now. And John says it. And then Jesus comes on the scene in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. And he begins to preach. And what's his message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. A couple chapters later. He will instruct his disciples to go forth preaching. And the message is, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I mean, you should sense the urgency of this message. That today is the day to repent. Today is the day to turn. Today is the day to confess your sins and cast your hope upon Christ And him alone. The announcement is that that kingdom is here now. Not a physical kingdom with boundaries, but a king who demands that everyone surrender to him. That's the kingdom here now. That's the new age that is dawned. Isaiah says of this, this prophetic work, this voice, he will prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Straight paths, the the Isaiah 40 verses 4 and 5 will go on to speak of of valleys being raised up and mountains being brought low. Sort of like filling in of the potholes and putting on fresh asphalt, laying the groundwork for the arrival of the king. John is the advance party, preparing the way, softening hearts. Do you see how the playing field is leveled here? There's only one way to be prepared. It's not about how big or small your house is. It is about the readiness of your heart. Is your heart repentant before this king? How is this announcement going to be received? Well, we see a bit of an example of that in verses 7 to 10. And this is the second step in the coming of the king. And this is the anticipation of the king. So verses 1 to 6 is the announcement. Verses 7 to 10 is the anticipation. Everyone is going out to see this. And this is big news, right? Everyone is going out to check out this preacher. All Judea, all the region are going out to him. Now they are going to model for us how to be prepared for this king. And I want to show you there's a bad way. Or a wrong way to prepare for him. And there is a right way to prepare for him. First, the wrong way to prepare for the king. Do you remember when you were a kid and mom and dad said to go clean your room? And you came back 30 seconds later and you said it's done? (laughs) Do you think you were really cleaning the room like mom and dad told you to, right? You're sweeping everything under the rug. You're throwing all the stuff in the closets. You're piling things up under the comforter, hoping they wouldn't notice it. And you come back and say, "It's done. I'm I'm ready. My room's clean." That's the Pharisees and the Sadducees in this text. Just a quick once-over, just kind of a, a, an external-looking preparedness and righteousness. Now, what's, what, what's fascinating to us, verse 7, but he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism. Okay, these are two different groups of religious leaders, Jewish religious leaders in the day of Jesus. They don't usually agree on much. right? Now the Pharisees have a very high standard of God's law. They have added many external laws to the law of God. The Sadducees have sort of broken off from that in a sense. I mean, they're both kind of leading, ruling parties, but they are very different and disagreeable. But they agree on one thing in this text. Let's go check out this strange voice in the wilderness. And they go out together. Why do they come out to see John? Most people come out to be baptized by him. The text tells us they were coming to his baptism. I don't think they wanted to be baptized at all. Or if they did, it was only for show. They just kind of wanted to go check it out. They wanted to see what this other religious leader was talking about. Is this a threat to them? Is this something new that they need to be worried about? Well, John sees right through them. I mean, his first words to them, You brood of vipers. Imagine if you were visiting this church for the first time and I looked at you and called you a brood of vipers. This is... He's not trying to gather a crowd with this type of preaching, right? But he sees right through them. Brood children of vipers, poisonous snake. Maybe he has in mind the serpent from Genesis 3, maybe. Maybe. In the Gospels, snakes are sly. They're cunning, right? They are workers of mischief and deceit. John sees this. He he says to them, the end of verse 7, very sarcastically, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? As if to say, I know I didn't warn you. Because I know you're not going to listen to me. You don't believe me. You don't believe any of this. Verse 8, they are acting as if they are repenting by coming out. John says you absolutely are not repentant because look at your life. There is no fruit. There is no evidence of any repentance having ever happened in you whatsoever. Your fruit is bad or it's non-existent. That means there's no root in you. Do not, verse 9, Presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. What is the problem with the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Why do they not repent? Well, they don't think they need to. They're sons of Abraham, they're from the right stock, they're from the right heritage, they're from the right family, they're in the right tradition. Uh, John, those other people, I mean, clearly the the Samaritans and the Gentiles, they obviously need to repent. But not us. We're we're sons of Abraham. To presume that that word at the beginning of verse 9, I think that's a, a key word in this passage. It's to assume. It's to assume there's something sort of special about them, that there's something about their status, their ancestry that is enough. Everybody else needs something. They don't need something or someone because they already have it. Now, to be clear, this is not the religion of the Old Testament. This is not what God teaches in the Old Testament. As long as you're uh, of Israel, then you're fine. That's not the gospel. The gospel is believe in the promised Messiah of God. In the Old Testament, they waited for him to come. In the New Testament, now he has Come. Most of us are not susceptible to this warning that we are presuming that we are righteous before God because we can trace our lineage back to Abraham. But that does not mean that we are not in danger of presumption. That we are not in danger of presuming or assuming that that we are righteous in the eyes of God for any reason outside of Christ. Because mom and dad go to church and mom and dad take me to church, then I'm good. Well, I, I go to a church that has the, the right theology, so I'm good. I bear lots of fruit. I do lots of good and wonderful things in my community, so I'm Good. All right, these are all versions of presumption before God, and to all who presume He says to us, "You brood of vipers. You have only cleaned the external part of your heart, um, not of your heart, of your life, of your image. And he mounts up this law against these religious leaders. And he calls them on their lack of fruit by telling them to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He is speaking to the prideful and the unrepentant in order to convict and to crush them. This is not how he speaks to repentant sinners. This is how he speaks to the unrepentant and the prideful. You brood of vipers bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So they're all zoom. How do we prepare the right way then? The right way to prepare for the king is what John has already told us, repent. Repent. The meaning of this word repentance is one of the keys to understanding the Christian faith in the first place. Many of you know the name of Martin Luther, uh, the great reformer uh, in Germany uh, in the 16th century. He had lots of questions about the faith. He had lots of questions about how the Roman Catholic Church was teaching uh, and leading in Christianity. And he was reading uh, once in his Latin version of the Bible and comparing it with the Greek version of the Bible, the original Greek And he saw that where the Greek said repent, the Latin said do penance. Now, if you're familiar at all with the Roman Catholic Church, the idea of penance is a sacrament. It's something that you must do. That's not what the Greek word means. That's not what the word repent actually means. With this knowledge in mind, Martin Luther essentially starts the Reformation. And he challenges the church. You're familiar with the 95 Theses that he wrote to, to start a discussion it ends up culminating in the Reformation. And they're about this understanding of what it means to repent. He says this, thesis number one, when Jesus said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. The entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Number two, this word cannot be understood as referring to, to the sacrament of penance. That is, confession and satisfaction as administered by the clergy. It can't be something external. It can't be a box that you check and you receive this sort of false assurance that you have done the right thing. Yet, number three, it does not mean solely inner repentance. Such inner repentance is worthless unless it produces various outward Mortification of the flesh, that's death of the flesh, that's fruit. It is worthless unless it is producing fruit. It is not an external act that we do. What is repentance? Repentance is simply turning from sin to God. It is turning in our mind. It is turning in our hearts. It is turning with our actions. It is turning with our attitudes. It is turning from sin unto God now verse 6 tells us when they came out to be baptized they were confessing their sins this is the beginning of repentance the confession of sins we do it every Sunday because the last 6 days you have given a lot of reasons that you need to confess your sins again and we're going to do it next Sunday and you are going to do it day by day as you are convicted of your sin and confessing it because it is It is the the mark of the life of a believer. Begins with confession, second repentance, a repentant heart does bear fruit, right? It, It changes. God changes his children bit by bit in ways that we often cannot see or even aware of. God, by the power of his spirit, bears fruit in each of us. Now, I want to warn you here. Many people think the gospel is bear fruit. That is to say, go do something good. Jesus did some good stuff. He bore fruit. So now you need to go bear fruit. That is not what John the Baptist is saying. He is not preaching the gospel of bearing fruit He is rebuking the false believers. He is rebuking the unrepentant with the law that they are not bearing fruit to expose the emptiness of their hearts. We do not need to be Christians that go around checking one another's fruit. (laughs) We do not need to be fruit inspectors to make sure that your repentance is real because you bear the type of fruit that I think that you should bear, right? And we all do this in the grocery store, at least, right? We go and buy some fruit in the produce aisle and we sort of, I don't know what we do. I, I don't know what I do. We check the fruit, but I don't know what I'm looking for. <laughs> Maybe some of you should key me in on what I should look for in a cantaloupe or whatever. We can be just as bad as Christians, sort of the fruit police. Well, she's not bearing the type of fruit that she really should be bearing you know what happens? We build up pride in our own hearts because we look at ourselves and we say, man, I've got the right fruit. But then we know that we don't and so it comes crushing down and we say, I don't have any fruit. Right? We start looking at ourselves. Our lives become sort of this constant inward looking, navel gazing, fruit inspecting religion and it leads to nothing but pride on the one hand and despair on the other hand. Neither of those is the gospel. Jesus doesn't tell us, bear fruit and be saved. He says, repent and believe and you will be saved. The Christian faith is one of freedom. It is one of resting in Christ, our Savior. And watching what the Spirit does in our lives. It is resting in our finished salvation. The gospel is not go do something. The gospel is something, everything has been done for you. That the only one who could ever have been righteous, the Christ, lived the righteous life on your behalf. That he died in your place. That he was raised from the dead. Not to give you an example of some good fruit to bear. My goodness, how hopeless is that? We can never be like him. But to give us someone to believe in. To hope in. To trust. To turn away the wrath of God. That in him, God would see us as perfect. And as righteous, John tells those who anticipate the arrival of this king not to prepare in the wrong way, which is to look about something special in them, but to prepare the right way, the only way to repent and to look unto Christ. This anticipation is finally fulfilled in the arrival. That's the final step. The arrival of the king, verses 11 to 13. The announcements, the anticipation, and the arrival. These final three verses, John, as he has just come onto the scene with a bang, begins to fade off. The scene begins to fade out of history, as it were. These verses are a contrast of John and Jesus. And in all of these contrasts he shows that he is the lesser and the child the son, the Christ is the greater. The first thing he says uh, about him is his sandals are not worthy to carry. That's the work of a servant, the work of a slave even. Maybe to tie the sandal strap, it says elsewhere, or just to carry the sandal. Now, Jesus will say of John later, there's no one greater than him. So John's the greatest man, who's not God, ever to live. And he is not worthy even to be the servant of Jesus. So what is greatness in the kingdom of God? It is service at the feet of Jesus. It is humbling ourselves at the feet of our king. Look, you can't look good carrying around somebody else's dirty shoes. There's no no glamorous way to do that, right? Service to our king is humbling. It is, as John will say later, we must decrease in order that he must increase. We must fade to the back in order that the glory and the light of Christ would shine in the front. You notice John is not a a man or a prophet or a a king or any of these things. How is he described? A voice. That's it. A voice fading for the might of the king to come in. That's the first contrast in their mightiness. The next contrast is in their baptisms. So we've seen what John's baptism is. It's one of repentance. Repentance. It's one of preparing. It's one of pointing the way for the one who is to come. Then he tells us about Jesus' baptism. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming, who is mightier, that's that first part, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. What in the world does that mean? Let me say on the front end, neither of these baptisms are the baptism that we practice in the church. These are not Christian water baptisms, right? John is preparing. So once Jesus has come, there's no longer a preparing baptism. And the baptism of Jesus, it refers to something different than water baptism that every Christian undergoes. Jesus' baptism is one of spirit and fire, not two different types, it's one baptism. It's spirit, fire, baptism. Now, those words bring to mind the Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, the coming of the Holy Spirit and the, the tongues of fire on the head of all the disciples. It brings to mind conversion. Right? Baptism in the Spirit is when the Spirit indwells God's children. Right? It happens at our conversion. We are given a new heart. and The Spirit takes up residence within us and bears fruit in us. It also brings to mind judgment, doesn't it? Spirit fire coming down on the people of God. John is not referring to a literal baptism as he is performing. He is referring, I believe, to the the coming age of this king. He is referring to the impact and the power and the might that this king will bring to bear On the people of God. It is no longer appropriate to have a baptism of preparation. Because when the king comes, he comes bringing with him spirit fire baptism. What does spirit and fire do? They purify. They refine. You see, John's baptism is on the outside. It's symbolic. The baptism of Jesus is inward. It, It divides, it convicts, it converts. John prepares for it. Jesus brings it to full culmination with the coming of spirit fire, as it were. And then the final contrast between the two is simply what happens in their ministry. John announces things. Jesus does them. John warns of the wrath to come. Jesus actually brings the wrath to come. The final closing image is not one we're too familiar with. It's that of a threshing floor uh, where the, the wheat has been brought in and the kernel, uh, or the grain is still attached to the stalk. Uh, and so uh, the, 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 the harvested plants are all gathered together on the threshing floor. Uh, And then with this winnowing fork, they're thrown into the air and the breeze blows away the lighter part, the chaff, and so that what falls back in the basket or back to the threshing floor is the the grain or the kernel, that which is worth keeping in a sense. So the work of Jesus is a work of division. It's a work of separation. And what happens to the chaff, John closes telling us, that it will burn with unquenchable fire. It's the third time fire has been brought up, the fire of judgment. The fire is reserved here for those who refuse to repent, who refuse to surrender, who presume I'm good enough, I'm righteous enough, I'm smart enough, who presume this is all just a bunch of uh, fairy tale and the judgment will never come. It's no such thing. John tells us that all of that, all of those are counted as the chaff upon which he will bring the righteous judgment of the king. It's the wrath to come. It is also the wrath that is here now. Verse 10, even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Even now. What he's saying is that the kingdom is here. The judgment of the king has begun. Do not presume because you are still alive today and it has been 2,000 years since this warning that you have 2,000 more years or two more years or two more days. The urgency of John's message matches the urgency of the message of Christ. The king has arrived, how do you respond? And John demands preparation. The king demands preparation. It is a preparation not of our house, but of our heart and of our soul. That preparation is surrendering everything. It is opening every closet. It is looking under every bed. It is shining his light into the depths of our soul. But it's not this preparation that saves. It's not repentance that saves us. It is Christ who saves. Repentance is the way that the Spirit opens our heart for him to come in. This is a vulnerable place to be. Quite frankly, this is a scary place to be. To be laid bare before the king. I mean, it's like when you go to the hospital and they put you in those hospital gowns. Those things are miserable, right? Right? <laughs> I mean, you have to take off everything, and you just have this little piece of fabric, and nobody looks good in those things. I mean, I've visited some of y'all in the hospital. I've visited, I'm not going to say what you look like in those gowns. You know what it is, right? I've worn them myself. Strong and powerful people don't look good in those gowns, and powerless and weak people don't look good in those gowns. John is like the nurse that comes and knocks on the room and says, put this on, and you're like, can I wear some other things? Nope, that's it. Prepare your heart, prepare your soul for the coming of the king. Repent and believe. Chapter one is the royal trumpet blast of the king who comes. Chapter two tells us the king is the expectation of every Old Testament promise. And chapter three lays our souls bare for the king's arrival. May God soften our hearts this morning, that we might surrender ourselves to this coming king. Amen. Would you pray with me? Lord, you know the hesitancy that remains within us. You know how we cringe at the idea of being laid bare and surrendered and vulnerable before our king. Lord, you know those rough Places that need to be smoothed down. You know those holes that need to be filled in. And we know that your prophet has come to make straight your path. And I pray you would do that in our every one of our hearts this very morning. And that we would not wait. But your spirit would prick our hearts to come to you in repentance and faith in the work of this king. In his name we pray. Amen.